Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Clint Watts, President and CEO of Mibaro Solutions, a strategic analysis and consulting company specializing in the detection and countering of malign influence and extremism. He's a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a national security contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. Previously, Clint served as a U.S. Army infantry officer and as a special agent with the FBI. His writing has appeared in a range of publications, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Politico, and War on the Rocks. Clint, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me again. So you and I spoke on one of our streaming shows a few weeks back. So I want to talk a little bit about where Russia stands in the intervening three or four weeks since we've spoken. So it's been nearly three months since Russia invaded Ukraine. We heard Vladimir Putin last week address his country on Victory Day that seemed to amount to a lot of empty words and was less than what I would call triumphant. The Russian military has been brought to a standstill and has embarrassed itself on the international stage. The Ukrainians have shown the world that they know what it means to fight for their country. So with all of this going on here, 90 days in or almost 90 days in, how do you see it? I think there are two ways to look at it. I think Russia's got some big problems. I think Ukraine's got big challenges. And what I mean by that is Ukraine has done way better than anybody anticipated. Russia's done much worse than anybody anticipated. But when you compare those two in the current battle, which is unfolding, Russia's moving to one front at a time instead of three fronts at once. They are advancing incrementally, although slowly, in Donbass and eastern Ukraine. There has been war and conflict in Donbass for eight years already. I like to remind people that. So this is not unheard of. There's a lot of dug-in defensive forces. This is going to be a slog. It's going to be artillery back and forth. It's going to be armor formations advancing. And the Russians, if they can get their troops to fight, will do well. But they can't get their troops to fight. So there's two aspects to this. One is logistics. Both sides are struggling with fuel. Both sides struggling with ammunition, at least getting it to where it needs to be. And the Ukrainians are starting to get an upper hand on that because thanks to the U.S. and NATO partners and all the EU countries, we're moving logistics to the border of Ukraine faster than Russia can move logistics to their troops. So that's pretty remarkable. And then I think the last part is just morale. Look, if you're going to lead an army into an invasion, they have to believe in the cause. They have to believe in the plan. They need to believe in their leaders. 
they need to believe in each other. Russia's 0 for 4 on that front. Ukraine is 4 for 4. And that matters more than maybe any technology, any artillery that comes in there. So I think the challenge really for Ukraine is, can they get everything into position and weather that artillery bombardment that's going to go on for weeks and months to such a point that the Russians have to declare victory in some form and go home? And I think they can do it. It's just when and how how much death and destruction will happen in between. And on that front, Putin and his cronies don't appear to care that much, whether or not it's fixed artillery pieces, multiple launch rocket systems, cruise missiles, bombs, whatever it is. They're a long way from a special mission that's going to take three days and we're going to get rid of Zelensky and basically take over Ukraine and make it part of Russia again. Now it's like, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. And this is a country, at least on the eastern side, that will have to be rebuilt from the ground up. That's correct. It is conquering through decimation. And who wants it in the end? You know, what do you get from all of that? And that's the sad part, I think, for Ukrainians who are facing off against an enemy that has overwhelming fires. That's always been the hallmark of Russian army advances is they use overwhelming amounts of indirect fire and missiles. But the challenge, I think, for the Russians at this point is they must be running low on precision-guided munitions. This is the kind of stuff that we're used to seeing from the American military. We do very targeted delivery of guided missiles. They have to be running low on that. They have no chips. They can't bring chips in due to the sanctions. Their ability to regenerate, that's going to be low. So that's going to limit them to just striking with broad swaths of artillery that may or may not be that impactful on the battlefield. And I mean, this is not 1945, right, where the Soviet Union had, first of all, taken what would be today trillions of dollars of American aid and materiel, right? Boots, tanks, trucks, gas, whatever it was. They had, you know, the legions of guards, armies and different fronts, you know, from the Baltic to Yugoslavia. It's just a different world. They were also, you know, part of the big three, but they were fighting an equally bad country. But in that context, we were allies. Now they have a backward military, it looks like, an economy sustained probably only by oil, if they can move it. And they don't have even like Nazi Germany as the counterweight to be like, this is the great patriotic war, right? They're just like, we wanted Ukraine back and we went to take it and it didn't work. And now, you know, instead of Victory Day with Putin proclaiming the next great success of his rule, uh, it's like, uh, we won World War II. Yeah. And he was so short and non-reflective of Ukraine that it really suggested to me that he's trying as much as possible to just not talk about it, to try and move the needle forward on the battlefield so you got something to talk about. I don't understand how he'll be able to sustain that position. And here's why. The casualty numbers, I think the UK has the best stuff. They're talking maybe 24,000 dead. Imagine half of Vietnam in three months, you know, roughly. You cannot hide that. Now, part of it is the way the Russian military operates is they leave their soldiers dead on the battlefield so families don't get notifications. They do have mobile crematories that they you know, pull behind. But guess what? Officers, they get funerals back home. They're going to go back home and get a funeral. That's send a signal. Generals, absolutely going to get a funeral. And there's been a bunch of those. Yeah, there's been a bunch of those. So eventually what happens, word gets out and parents start wondering, hey, I've not heard from my son in at least six, eight, 10 weeks, they'll figure it out. And I think that is where mid to late summer, when this starts to unfold, the economy is still hurting. Things change decisively for Putin at some point. Well, I'm just looking here in Afghanistan between December 1979 and February 1989, 
about 15,000 Soviet soldiers were killed and another 35,000 were wounded, right? So in three months, they've already got more dead than they lost in Afghanistan. I have to assume that there's a lot of Russians, Clint, that still remember Afghanistan who lost family members, sons, fathers, brothers, whatever it might be. How much wanton destruction are Russians willing to put up with, you know, against a neighbor, a friendly neighbor, or, you know, at least not unfriendly neighbor? And how much psychic shock are they willing to put up with at home? And I say this, as I mentioned in one of my last guests about, you know, as they're watching propaganda, you know, extolling the virtues of going to heaven in a nuclear flash. It won't be too much longer because you are hearing veterans of the Afghan war, you know, Soviet officers speaking up. They are speaking up. I find that quite remarkable. They're talking because they know what's going on. I think there's legitimate concern among certain oligarchs, certain military leaders that Russia will be destroyed in this process. You know, it's going to be an earthquake at some point. So they're trying to weigh that out. I'm also watching closely what Russia does. They're going to do a coordinated heavy push in the east. There's an axis called Izium. There's two or three that are further to the east. They're going to redeploy those forces from Mariupol and let them rest a few weeks. Some of that's already underway. And then they're going to make a push. They will. They'll make a coordinated push and see what happens. If it goes really poorly, I'm not sure what they'll do. And then it becomes the dangerous scenario of how far will Putin go to make sure that he has some sort of a victory? Would he drop a tactical nuke? Or will he de-escalate? And it depends on who you talk to. Some people, you know, in the US are like, oh, you're crazy. He won't do it. Others are saying, this is the first time in my life I've worried about a nuclear device going off. So that is, I think, that middle ground where we're just not so sure what's going on. But I mean, if the Russian forces rest, refit, all that kind of stuff, replace, that doesn't occur in the vacuum, right? Like the Ukrainians are taking their time too, right? The buildup of Western hardware, you know, getting their forces squared away, getting more civilians out of the line of fire. So just to say, okay, well, the Russians are going to do this. Therefore, you know, the Ukrainians are going to get pushed back is not at all true, right? No, definitely not. Every day that the Russians fail to advance or move forward is another day the Ukrainians can reposition and resupply. Now, the Russians are doing a few things to try and mess that up. They did some false flag attacks out in Transnistria, that part of Moldova that's held by Russian separatists. That was to keep Ukrainian forces worried that they may need to defend that direction so they don't deploy east. In the south, they're still ramping up and putting more combat power in there to advance from the south north towards Zaporizhia. Maybe they try and do that. I doubt it. I don't know how they would take it and hold it. I don't know how they could coordinate that. But that's also to keep some Ukrainian forces penned down in the south so that they can't redeploy to the east. So they're doing things to try and make it more difficult for the Ukrainians. But ultimately, those folks that had victory in Kiev, guess what? They're going to go try and have victory in Donbass, and they're going to head there, you know, in waves. The big challenge for them is there's no gas, there's no vehicles. It's not easy to get there, you know, at this point, because that part of the country has been under three months of war. So how do they reposition? How do they resupply? How do they get ammunition in there? They are solving it. You can watch it in Twitter, you know, on videos, but it's not as easy as we might think. So a couple of things, just given your background also in the cybersecurity realm, it seems like that over the past few years, I think especially going back to like 2014, the Russians would use whacking Ukrainian infrastructure with cyber attacks as sort of a test bed for something else. It doesn't seem like we've seen that. If we have, it's not really making a lot of noise. What's been different this time? Because you would think that if you were going to go in and take over a country, 
that the fastest way to go about it would be to wreck its critical infrastructure from St. Petersburg. They are doing cyber attacks in a tactical operational kind of way. But a few things that happened was Ukraine has always been the test bed for Russian cyber. Russia's always conducting cyber attacks. So Ukraine got more resilient and they learned how to fight back. And now you have the Russians being attacked at home. The Russians never had to defend their homeland from cyber attacks. Now they're getting mauled by anonymous and probably other nation states and the Ukrainians, right? So that's a, they're distracted. Now many of their cyber attackers have to be cyber defenders. You just got less people out there to do it. I think the other thing that Putin knows and the Russians know is in this context of a war, any sort of attack that is outside a directed attack towards Ukraine could be seen as escalation, which could prompt more cyber attacks on them. So they're using restraint. And this goes against the kind of conventional wisdom that you would hear, you know, in DC that there was going to be cyber apocalypse as soon as there's war. Russia's cyber apocalypse. No, there's not. I think over time, you know, if this conflict were to end and Russia is still very isolated by sanctions or pinned down and only on their own internet, they will increase cyber attacks because they got less to lose. If they're not part of Western banks, why not attack a Western bank? Before, lots of oligarchs were hurt whenever they attacked a Western bank. You know, going back to something about the families of Russian soldiers, officers, generals that have been killed, what about the individual Russian citizen? Now, I know that they're inundated by propaganda, that they are pinned in literally and figuratively by the security services. But this can't be a great time to be the individual Russian, you know, just trying to get through their day. No, it's rough. And part of it is nationalism. Think back to the Iraq war. Even in the early days of the Iraq war, America was fully on board. You know, it took time for support for the Iraq war to wane, for the reality of what was going on in the ground, for troops to deploy and come home. Russia will have a version of that start to unfold, if not already. It's happening in trickles. Separately, you are having some Russians speak out here and there, but they're a muted voice or censored. And the content on social media is highly censored, you know, inside Russia. So it's pulled down. It just takes time, I think, at this point for Russians to become aware of what's really going on inside Ukraine. And there's always a contingent that will always believe that there are Nazis all over Ukraine and the Russians need to fight them. And all of this is justified. And I have Americans argue with me about that. And I like to remind them we are the home of QAnon. So people will believe things, you know, over time. So I want to talk to a little bit about leadership first over there and then here. So, I mean, I think obviously all of us have been in awe of Volodymyr Zelensky and his leadership during this time, that this is truly someone who the moment arrived and he met it. And then you see, you know, the prime minister of Finland, Marin, and the prime minister of Estonia, uh, Kallis, right? They're young. Two of them are women. Finland, you know, just said it's probably going to, you know, apply to NATO. I find them extraordinarily inspiring because they are all literally on the front lines. They are all people who have parents and grandparents who grew up either in Finland, always worried about the Russian bear, or in places like Estonia and Ukraine behind the Iron Curtain. They were all born behind the Iron Curtain, or two of the three of them. And they seem to be the ones who were standing up furthest and strongest against the biggest, I mean, by landmass, the biggest country in the world. Whereas, you know, you've got Macron being like, let's not embarrass Putin. The Germans going, I don't know how I feel about things. I mean, what's your sense of that? It's remarkable to watch in the last two crises, COVID and now Russia, Ukraine, 
that it has been a newer generation of European or Western leaders or democratic leaders that have performed remarkably well. There's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern. She was the one that was highly successful during COVID, you know, with the lockdowns and negotiating things with her people. This just, I think, speaks as well to how you communicate in the modern era. Zelensky's remarkable. It's so fascinating to watch. He did a video where he was walking down the streets of Kiev talking to a camera. The reports are he's got his producers from television that he used to work with helping him. Yeah. No, he's incredible. Super powerful. What would a U.S. or European leader have done? They would have listened to their advisors who would be advising them incorrectly to get behind a podium, give a very standard speech for 35 minutes, take questions from very standard outlets that no one pays attention to. They will not pay attention to it because the modern communicator is an influencer. If you are not able to communicate in 30 seconds or less, something that's very concise that people can understand in an engaging way, and it's got to be in video, and you can't make your audience see themselves in you, then you're done. It's going nowhere. And that's really the challenge, I think, for Western democratic leaders, because they also swing the other way, which is they think they need to do a dance video or some sort of a game. And that's not it either, right? That's not what Zelensky's doing. So there's a new way to communicate. Yeah, he does elements of it, but he's not just trying to win votes by being goofy. He's got a plan in his production and it's working. Maybe Zelensky and so many of these others are doing it because they are on the front lines, right? Because they don't have time for pretense or any of the other silly bullshit that American or maybe Western European leaders think they can get away with. But it certainly seems to be something as we zoom out of Europe and zoom back into the U.S., Clint, that Americans, at least that I talk to, you know, where's our Zelensky, they ask, right? Or I'm so sick of both sides. So where is the next generation? I mean, you look at the Democratic and Republican Senate leadership. I mean, the average age has got to be 78, right? The Democratic House leadership is maybe 80. The president's pushing 80. The Republican House conference is spring chickens in their mid-late 50s by comparison. Where are the crazy kids from Generation X like me? We have lots of great leaders that are younger. They're just not participating in the electoral process to be political leaders in the U.S. Instead, they see opportunity and they see achievement and getting things done in different ways. Many of them are activists, you know, I think at a local level, achieving great things. And a lot of them are heading to corporate America because for all of its weaknesses and frustrations, you can see some sort of tangible outcome from what you're doing and you can move things forward. So I think that the example that they see is two things, right? They see somebody that's not like them, much older, not just a little older, generations <laughs> older. So how would you imagine yourself in that kind of a role? Separately, why would you want to go through the pain to get there? Because very little of what the job is about has anything to do with the campaign, the process, the electoral, this and that. You're not going to spend much time on issues. You're mostly going to spend time responding to smear attacks, right? And I don't know that it comes down to core issues anymore. You can't tell me Marjorie Taylor Greene comes down to core issues, right? That doesn't make any sense. Oftentimes when you see them, you know, running today, Dr. Oz, that can't be about representing the people of Pennsylvania. No. <laughs> so it's just kind of fascinating to watch who will step in the arena and who doesn't care and sees that battle about just culture wars and smear campaigns as what they want to do or what they want to take on. And it's very clear that that's what it's about. Then 
the result to your point is what we're seeing, which is given all other options, right? The worst options are appearing as candidates for high office. I, I think more particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, where whether or not it's QAnon, as you noted earlier, the big lie of 2020, like these are sort of mainstream things for Republican candidates, which is why I think you saw like in Arizona, a guy like Doug Ducey opted out of a Senate race. A guy like what's his name up in New Hampshire said, I could probably beat Maggie Hassan, but do I really want my life spent, you know, in a cloakroom with Mitch McConnell? Like, I don't think I do. Right. Well, the other part of it is they like to selectively pick and choose the Constitution as a perfect document. But we know the framers of the Constitution never thought that reps would stay in office for 50 years. When you compare it to government service, FBI agents have to retire at 57, mandatory retirement at 57. Imagine, you know, they're there for 25 more years. Same thing with the Supreme Court, you know, right now. Lifetime terms, well, probably average age was 60, you know, then. Now it's not unforeseeable that people live well into their 90s. And how does that really set the tone for what the country wants? It's not very representative. So term limits, I think, just make a lot of sense. And the other part is some of the positions and how they've been politicized, the attorney general position. We have an FBI director in the FBI for 10 years. Why? So that position can move through administrations, political changes so that it, it can stay true to the law. We had what, three or four, attor three attorney generals last time around? We had interim attorney generals. You can't maintain law, you know, an even conduct of the law in a system like that. The other part is the issues that are the most dynamic and most important right now don't get addressed because the people that are currently in office have no understanding or real context for it. Cyberspace and the internet, some of them started in office long before the internet was ever invented. Climate change, that was an issue that was sort of fringe. It's now going to become top of mind. You have to have reps that have wrestled with those issues, that have wrestled with big tech, that have done things like energy policy for the new era. Without that, you can't advance the country forward. I've made this joke before. I don't know that it's that funny. Maybe it's not a joke. This, I've made this observation before. that Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who is running for re-election again this year, was born in the first year of FDR's first term which means that Chuck Grassley is older than the New Deal. Yeah, that's pretty crazy and true. I also find it ironic, coming from the military, we had what was known as gray beards. And they were in their 40s? <laughs> 50s. <laughs> yeah. 50s. They were 50. When I was in Korea, I was stationed there. You would have to pick up these gray beard teams, and they were mentors for the upcoming senior leaders of the army. So we don't need to discard people because they hit a certain age. They can still be mentors, right? They're still political mentors. We don't expect our presidents to just evaporate, right? They oftentimes call the old presidents back in or you know, talk to them about things or get their opinion. We still count on them to be leaders in terms of governance and society. So why don't we do that, this expectation that someone's going to go and sit in the seat from age 36 to 90? I don't know how that's good for the country. There's also like, why do you want to be there that long? I mean, at some point, You've got to want to do something else, I'd assume. But more often than not, they don't. I don't know why you'd want to be in the House for 40 years, to be honest with you. I don't even know why you'd want to be in the Senate for 40 years or any of it for 40 years. But they won't go away. But also, it's because the boomers and, frankly, the silent generation of, of Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, like, they just won't go away either, right? Like, they don't want to give the Gen Xers the car keys. And we're in our, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. You know, some Gen Xers are damn near 60. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a turnover and it will completely go to the next generation. 
that will be the leaders because they're the most active. The younger workers that I work with are fantastic. They understand a lot of these issues. They're very passionate about it. I think the last four years have really got them supercharged about democracy and saving it more. They also have to be amazing. They have to be the next greatest generation because if they're not, there won't be another one. The challenges they face are way too intense, whether it's tech or climate or national debt, social services, housing, like all of these issues have to be tackled and they'll be the ones to do it and they'll have to, or we won't survive as a country the way that we've gone on over the last 50 to 75 years. That's a good question about the democracy piece because there seems to be a lot of apathy. We talk a lot about democracy and how, you know, I mean, there's always been the old trope, democracy isn't a spectator sport. But for a lot of folks, Republicans, Democrats, otherwise, they've had it with everybody. They're fed up with everybody. Find me somebody in the middle. And I hear that a lot. And now somebody who tried to start a third party for several years and got exactly one ballot line after two years worth of work, I tell you, it's not nearly as easy as it looks. But there is that desire. So you've got this weird compression at the top of a generation that won't let go. And then you've got these bottom feeders who just want power. And then you've got all the people in the middle who are just trying to like make it through the day in a time of, you know, COVID, inflation, war, everything. And it seems like a good combination for upheaval, peaceful upheaval, I hope, electoral upheaval. But, you know, then I talk to folks who are like, it's already over. You know, Democrats are going to get crushed. Republicans are going to do what they're going to do. It doesn't even matter. I'm a little bit more optimistic, I think, now than I was a few years ago. And I do see more people stepping forward that I know to run for office in both political parties. I think they'll, for the most part, be really good. I'd be shocked if they're not. I also believe the younger generation is going to do some things that reinvent democracy, meaning accountability or engaging with the public. They just need to have the opportunity to do that. And in the next 10 years, I think you will see them move into that place. And I think what you're seeing in Europe is a foreshadowing of what we'll see here. You will see more leaders like a Zelensky, the prime minister of Finland. You will see more leaders like the prime minister of New Zealand, just because by age, there's no way the, the current state of things can continue. It's impossible. I do think Gen X, which I'm also part of, will be skipped over for the most part. I see it as when I'm working with my researchers, as my job is to help hand off the baton from those that were in front of me to them, because it will be them that will have to do it. The complexity of issues is so intense. The amount of time they've already spent at work or in college, the level of their intelligence and the speed at which they grasp things, it outpaces me who had a half of a life in the internet and half of it before it. And I think they're going to move very, very quickly. And I think if they can go easy on each other and themselves and lower their expectations a little bit, they'll do fantastic. You know, if they can avoid the trap of the infighting, going for the jugular about some old tweet or, you know, something like that, they're going to do fantastic. And I, I think they will as they grow up. Remember, was it a couple of years ago, maybe? I don't remember exactly when it was. When President Obama, I think, was giving remarks to a bunch of college kids. And he said, now, I know that everybody you want to support, you want to be perfect. And you want to be able to promise you everything and that they'll actually do it. And he said, I got to be honest with you. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. There is no perfect person. There is no perfect candidate or perfect leader. And if you guys continue to have unrealistic expectations about what another human being can provide you or can promise you, we're going to be in trouble. 
And I think he was absolutely right, especially given the fact that, you know, having not only been the first black president, but winning in such a way he did, that the expectations for him were always probably impossible. I was at a talk when I was doing my book tour. At the end, two students came up and they were graduating. And one of them said, all we need is a book that tells us everything that our parents screwed up. So we won't do that. That was her comment. And I realized that that has been what is sort of been mainlined into that generation, which is all possible mistakes are knowable. If you avoid all mistakes, you will get to where you need to go. And that you can know all of these things, that all the answers are knowable. And I said to her, I said, well, the only thing you know about the future is it's never going to be exactly like the past. So even if I gave you that book, something new will come up that will challenge you and you will make a decision and it will come out as a mistake. And she said, I'm not sure. <laughs> and I was like, I am. But it just, you know, I think the mindset, if you go through high school today or college today is you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you can't do this. And if you do all those things, then you'll go to the great school, you'll perform well, you'll get your job and you'll come out the other side. We've kind of given this story or kind of confirmed this pathway for them. It's pretty difficult for them to think won't be that way once they turn 22 and head off to their first job. Well, do you think that having all of the information humanity's ever created at your fingertips is a part of that? That there's never an answer they can't find on Google? Yeah, the death of expertise. Uh, you know, Tom Nichols. Just on the show last week? Yeah, that's one of the three outcomes of social media is clickbait populism provides a lot of power to people who don't know a whole lot. Two, social media nationalism. You connect with a digital nation that you may actually not be a part of or even represent any of those values, but you can choose to be part of it. And then you start aligning how you think and your perception of the world around it. And the third is the death of expertise. The death of expertise is troubling because I work in disinformation and so much of what is on that machine as so-called history is not true, right? Like it gets rewritten and revised. And that's part of the debate in academia and other places. And we're always wrestling with our history. And that's been one of the things I've found the toughest working with younger researchers when they come on board is they carry such shame about all of the past. I was like, look, guys, the longer you go through life, many of the things that you experience or you see, you'll grow and you'll look at it differently, you know, as you get older. And that's just called getting better incrementally over time. Every generation does that. But the machine has convinced them that the answers are all there. And the machine has convinced them that there is a right that can be known and can be selected before a wrong could ever be selected. So it's fascinating to me how that is occurring today, especially as the internet breaks up. I think this is super important right now. There's China's internet, there's the Western internet, and there's distorted internets in between, Russia, Saudi Arabia. They all are going to have different versions of history. So this machine, Reed, that you're talking about, how are they going to know which one's right? That's going to be their challenge. You know, when they're 40, 50, 60 years old is, will they actually have all information in history and science that's ever been produced? Or will they have the version of whoever controls that pipe? But is that really all that different than libraries in individual nations or countries in the 15, 16, 1700s, you know, newspapers in those places, libraries in those places, behind the Iron Curtain and not behind the Iron Curtain, different radio stations, different TV stations, all that other stuff. So I guess my question is, it's not new to have a balkanized information flow, right? It's not new, but the scale and speed at which it is produced and changes is what's new. Meaning 
if there was a debate, let's say everyone wrote a world history book, and this is why I don't like everyone comparing the internet to a printing press. They'll often say, oh, when the printing press came along, this was just the same. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> First of all, eight people could read. Yeah. This phone right here, everyone's a printing press, an audio studio, a video producer, you know, like you're everything. And multiply that times several billion. With no editors. With no editors, right? So that is not an equivalent. The other part is it can be updated and changed so quickly that even that version of world history, let's say it was written in 1870, for someone to change it, it was a couple of years, right? Now it's a couple seconds. Wikipedia, you know, does a bot to detect changes to make sure it, it resets. But in other parts of the world, it's just not going to be possible. Before history was written by the winners coming up, history will be written by every country, every regime, every oligarch that controls the information pipes, the flows, the content, and the applications. So you mentioned the the, the younger folks, especially, are always there's always something bad in our country's past. I think it was basically the way you were saying it, you know, and this could be George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. In 2020, we did an ad with Mount Rushmore and people were like, how could you do that about Mount Rushmore? Like, don't you know that Jefferson and Washington owned slaves? I'm like, they did. They're also the fathers of the country. I don't know what to tell you. That's one of the conflicts that we see as some, you know, we're not Republicans, we're not Democrats, we're sort of pro-democracy, but we like to believe ourselves to be realists as such a thing as possible is that like a lot of folks like who we need to get to vote for democracy when they hear that stuff they're like well first of all i wasn't around right like what do you want me to do and second that's crazy like that's crazy to me because they consider themselves patriotic and they consider george washington the father of the country so how do we square that where you have you know people let's call it just for argument's sake 45 50 and over who have a particular perspective on the country and folks that say 40 and younger who do take to heart the sort of original sin of the country. I think it's important that we talk about it. It's perspective of the history. It's perspective of the era. That's what often gets left out, which is, okay, awful. Yeah, I wish that hadn't happened. Let's look at it, you know, and be a little bit more broad in terms of how we interpret what was going on during that era. It was absolutely terrible. Should we have done it? Definitely not. But we did. And so what happened? Well, there was an era where we had corrections. And on any given day, as long as we're 55, 45, and we're moving forward, things are improving, right? And moving the whole nation requires that. So I think, you know, perspective on an issue or perspective on a conflict or whatever it might be is great. We should always evaluate it. So you learn these things, right? But it's perspective of the era that I think has to be included in a lot of this. And we shouldn't apologize for it. What's the perspective of the issue, perspective of the era? Where have we gone since then? Are we moving forward or not? If we're moving backwards, which I think in terms of race issues in the country, I definitely have concerns that we're moving backwards, you know, in places in terms of rights for women. Absolutely. This is Roe versus Wade. We're having a debate about this, which I thought was, what do they say, settled law. And so I actually think the younger generation, they are going to react when these things happen. And that, these things can be the catalyst for the move of that next generation into the activism that I think we need. Well, Clint, we're going to leave it there today. Before we let you go, where can everybody find you online? Best way to do it is on Twitter at Selected Wisdom. And then at Substack, same thing, Clint Watts or Selected Wisdom. You'll find me in both places. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen or on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Clint, thank you so much. Love the conversation. Hope you'll come back and see us and everybody else. We'll see you soon.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.